if we're going to build the next version of the internet, uh, it needs to be open and a public good and, you know, not a closed for-profit system. Uh, you know, the, the success of the internet comes in large part because although many of the components of it are operated for-profit by companies, the internet itself, the protocols and the structure that knits it all together, is not, you know, AOL. It's not some centrally operated network where a single operator gets to choose who connects and how, how it's used and so on and so forth. And so I think that's a, an absolutely crucial aspect of why the internet succeeded. And if we want to build a successful uh, successor or even just successful additional infrastructure, we have to follow in its footsteps. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Before we dive into today's episode, I do want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Hexens, one of the most hardcore security teams in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including the work on their new ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Newbake, and others. Um, today is September 20th, and we have an awesome interview lined up with Nick Johnson, the founder of ENS Labs. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you're definitely an OG in the space. You've been uh, working at ENS for what six years now. So I would love to just get a start of you know what you guys have uh, accomplished and some of the challenges you've run into, and maybe a little uh, peek into what you're building going forward. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so as you sort of hinted, I joined less than a year after the launch of Ethereum, which at the time felt late, but uh, doesn't now. And uh, I've been building ENS almost since that point. It was uh, one of the first projects I started working on at the Ethereum Foundation and then spun out into its own organization and we've been building it ever since. And I think in terms of what we've accomplished, the main thing is of course that ENS is the preeminent decentralized naming service. And I think the fact that we've done that and that we're credibly neutral, that we're governed by a DAO, that we're minimizing the amount of human governance uh, necessary and that we're building it as a public good uh, rather than a for-profit company, uh, I think just enhances that accomplishment. Uh, so I'm incredibly impressed with what we've achieved. Same, speaking for myself, obviously biased. Um, but, you know, it's, it's only the beginning of what we're working on. And so, you know, as we roll out into L2 support and, and better UX and more functionality, uh, it'll become even more useful for our users. So I want to get a little bit dive a little deeper on exactly what the roadmap is for the future. Uh, what are the biggest problems that are still kind of being at that pain point for the ENS DAO? Uh, and how are you looking to tackle those? So I think for, for ENS more broadly, we've always had sort of a, a three-stage vision. Every app should use ENS to the point where it's the assumption, you know, when a user comes to it, that they can enter an ENS name anywhere they can enter an address. And that anywhere an address might show up, an ENS name would show up instead and that they'd be surprised when it isn't supported rather than you know, having to check that it is. And I think we're close but not there yet for that. Uh, our second vision has always been that um, every asset can have an ENS name um, and that it can be done transparently and cost-free. Uh, and that's our big focus at the moment. That's you know, what we're working on mostly and that involves uh, rolling off, out on L2s for low-cost registrations, making it easier for people to issue subnames, uh, making it possible for organizations like Coinbase to use either an L2 or just host names entirely off-chain, and basically giving name owners sort of control over the trust model of how their names are managed and their subdomains are managed and so forth. And so we're focusing on that mostly at the moment by building tooling that makes it easier for people to work on L2, it's been possible to host names on L2 since we launched uh, CCIP Read over a year ago. But what's been missing is the, the easy plug and play tooling that makes it trivial for someone to do that. You don't have to be Coinbase in order to set it up, whereas at the moment, the, the integration overhead's a bit higher. So that's our main focus on the back end. And then on the front end, it's all you know corresponding work to make the, the usability uh, meet the, the feature set on the back end. So how does that work from a more technical level? If a user mints a name on an L2, does the ownership reside on the L2 or is it ever settled back down to L1 at any point? So that's a really good question. And it's one of the biggest uh, things that we have to tackle. So the initial version of our L2 support is you can 
create a name on L1 and then you can update it and set its records and so forth on L2. So the name still lives on L1. And as an extension of that, you can issue subdomains and you can give those subdomains to people and they can, that can all happen on the L2 without touching L1 at all. The uh, caveat for that, for that first iteration, is that it won't be trustless in the same way. You're still trusting the owner of the, the parent name, the second level name, not to run you, basically. Um, you know, that, that, that uh, person has no additional trust assumptions. They can use the L2 without compromising their security. But as a user, you're dependent on them to, to maintain your subdomain. And that's kind of, you know, that's an acceptable trade-off maybe when your counterparty is Coinbase, for instance, because you're already trusting them with a lot of other stuff. Uh, less so when it's some random DGN who bought wallet.eth and wants to issue subdomains. So the next step is providing better functionality for locking things in so that that person can credibly say, I don't have the ability to take your name off you, in the same way that ENS can say that about names in general. And the way we're handling that is by building out this general purpose infrastructure that makes it easy to put your names on L2s. And then we can set it up in a way so that people can effectively uh, commit the power to upgrade things to the DAO so that the DAO would manage upgrades across the whole ecosystem for anyone that agrees to do that and therefore you know, remove that, that uh, node of trust of the owner of the actual name. And of course, you could have uh, other organizations that agree to manage the names as well. It just needs to be made clear in the interface that you know, who it is that you're trusting to maintain your name. And ideally, that's nobody. But the next step down from that is at least it's a large, well-known organization that administers all of ENS anyway. Okay, really interesting there. And, and so you also mentioned uh, subdomains in that. And of course, Co Coinbase launched Coinbase ID. Um, are there any other groups or entities that are really showing interest? And you don't have to name names, but maybe just like the types of groups and entities uh, that kind of like, hey, that's a really cool idea. You know, if we had that, that would like really enable this new feature line for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've we've been speaking to, to wallets uh, who want to do this in order to issue subdomains for all their users, which has always been a long-term vision of mine. You know, the wallet sign-up flow should include naming your wallet. Uh, you shouldn't have to even know or care what your Ethereum address is any more than you do what your um, you know your IP address is. Uh, and we've uh, we've chatted with other exchanges that are interested in following in Coinbase's shoes. Uh, we're also not at the, the subdomain level, but at the top level domain level, we've had interest from various TLDs who want to either launch on ENS or add ENS functionality to their existing DNS names. Interesting. Okay. So zooming out a little bit too, like you say, you know, one of the primary goals, what you want to achieve is to be able to name any asset, give any asset a, you know, an ENS domain name. So what are the actual benefits for the users on that front? Like, why should I care that that's possible? I mean, I think the, the primary one is usability. Like if I asked you what Google's IP address was, you couldn't tell me because there's no reason you would know that and there's no reason you would want to know that. Uh, and IP addresses are a lot shorter than Ethereum addresses. They're a lot easier to memorize. Um, and so really the same degree of usability ought to apply to, to Ethereum, to crypto in general. And so when you sign up for a wallet, uh, you ought to be able to pick a name. Ideally, it should be, you know, that it can be pseudonymous and disconnected from all your other wallets too. So the fact you're naming it doesn't mean you're doxing yourself. It just means you're providing some sort of handle to identify it. And ultimately we create accounts because we want to transact with them. And so at some point that involves giving that address to someone else or some you know third party or site or whatever. And this just makes that an order of magnitude easier. Right. So you, you mentioned the wallet piece there as well and just like really simplifying the user experience. Um, but please correct, correct me if, if this is wrong, but my current understanding is that uh, the resolving an ES and ENS name has to actually happen at the wallet level. It's not actually happening at the protocol level, right? So if I like pulled up uh, the CLI interface, I couldn't just like send ETH to Nick.eth. Um, what are the kind of issues around that? And, you know, do you think like ENS has maybe grown to a size where it's actually worse UX for the application to not support the, the names rather than the other way around? You're right. Uh, ENS resolution does take place at the application layer. Uh, which isn't to say you couldn't have a command line interface that does it, of course, but you know it does happen in the apps. 
and we've worked with uh, ethers and web3.js and so on to push that down the stack as much as possible. So, you know, if you're building an app on top of ethers and you use, uh, you know, ethers address fields anywhere, they'll accept DNS names anywhere they accept addresses. So often if an app doesn't support DNS, it's actually more because they were ignorant of the ability to do so than because they had to expend any particular effort to, to add support for it. Um, a protocol with naming built in at the base layer would look quite different from Ethereum. And so ultimately, you know, having made the choice that Ethereum is the system to build on and is, is the platform, um, building it on top of Ethereum rather than in Ethereum was, was the best bet. Uh, it's, I, I'm a little ambivalent about whether it would be a better system if, you know, whether Ethereum would be a better protocol if it had naming at the base layer. There are sort of pros and cons. It introduces a lot of you know, protocol layer complexity. Um, and again, drawing the parallel to IP addresses, you know, the internet does pretty well with naming being an add-on. It's just so universal that it looks like part of the basic infrastructure. Yeah, I love I love that perspective there. I think I think that makes a ton of sense. And I, I really like your approach as well of saying, okay, well, let's not push it down the uh, the protocol stack itself, but rather the development stack and, and just getting it in the hands of making it easier for developers to use it. And as a result, it, it kind of is this widely adopted um, um, platform, which is it's just really exciting to see. And so I want to talk a little bit about the DAO itself and kind of how you think about DAOs as a whole. So after working in a DAO for six years, are you bullish on DAOs and their format and the ability to be decentralized and have everybody have these like active opinions? Or does the decentralization aspect stagnate growth too much or create too many roadblocks? Uh, so first, I guess I should disclaim, I've only been working in a DAO for about two years because when ENS launched, it was uh, administered by multisig. And, you know, the sort of gradual decentralization has always been the roadmap. Uh, I'm sort of... I'm of two minds about it. Like, I think the ENS DAO has done a pretty damn good job, um, but also the, there is the inevitable sort of decentralization, effect, uh, I guess, friction uh, that, that it generates uh, in, in terms of making decisions and so forth. I think DAOs are a lot better at reactive stuff. So somebody comes to them with a protocol upgrade or whatnot, and they just, you know, they discuss the merits and decide to implement it than they are proactive stuff like planning roadmaps and things like that. And so for that reason, I think it makes a, you know, sort of the division we've got makes a lot of sense where you have a DAO and then you have one or more development orgs who basically come to the DAO and say, here's the cool stuff we can do, fund us. And, you know, as long as they're credible, they, they get funded. And the, the fact that you don't just have to have one of those and that the DAO can, can independently decide which organizations they're going to fund makes it a lot more meaningfully decentralized than just having the company run things directly. It also means that any actual changes still have to go by the DAO, which again is the uh, the reactive aspect where I think DAOs are quite good at sort of assessing changes and, and approving them and acting as a safety valve effectively. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I love to hear your perspectives on, on DAOs. I feel like, you know, no one really has a, a silver bullet for the right way to operate one. And I'm glad to see that you guys are doing some kind of innovative uh, attempts at, at being more efficient. But in the same vein, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on public goods funding? I feel like that's been a pretty hot topic as of late, especially with the rise of like the OP stack, uh, you know, Coinbase contributing sequence of revenue or profit to public goods funding. Do you have a strong opinion there? If we're going to build the next version of the internet, uh, it needs to be open and a public good and, you know, not a closed for-profit system. Uh, you know, the, the success of the internet comes in large part because although many of the components of it are operated for-profit by companies, the internet itself, the protocols and the structure that knits it all together is not, you know, AOL. It's not some centrally operated network where a single operator gets to choose who connects and how, how it's used and so on and so forth. And so I think that's uh, an absolutely crucial aspect of why the internet succeeded. And if we want to build a successful uh, successor or even just successful additional infrastructure, we have to follow in its footsteps. And so I think having well-funded public goods is essential. I think having a route to actually like funding the public goods in the first place to be able to say, here is this really important thing. Everyone agrees we need it. 
will somebody pay for it? And actually the answer being yes, rather than just sitting on everyone sitting on their hands uh, is crucial. And ENS is in a particularly good position to help push this forward because we have registration fees there necessary as part of the protocol. If we didn't have registration fees, you'd expect every name would be snapped up instantaneously and any, you know, anyone coming along after would be out of luck. Um, and so we, we have to charge the fees and then we have a treasury. And what do we do with the treasury? Well, part of what we do is pay for development and, and operation of the DAO and the development org and so forth. But that leaves rather a lot left over. And I think the most responsible thing is to contribute it back to other public goods that maybe don't have that same funding stream or are earlier in their life cycle and, and still building up. I want to give a quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZKEVM. Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day -day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history. So it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io. Find them in the links in the show notes or reach out to them at Permissionless. They'll be at booth 832. Uh, but without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. Glad you brought up the registration fees there because they if you amortize the registration fees over the life of the uh, the registration period, right? So if you know someone paid, let's just make up a number here, $100 uh, for a five-year registration, then you take that and divide it evenly across uh, the registration period on a monthly basis. So if you use that calculation uh, across all of the registrations to date, uh, you actually are still like the the revenue fees are not, are not small, right? This is a couple million dollars a month, and so you do have a lot of firepower to kind of make those changes. The other side of the camp would probably come in and say, "Hey, you guys are making a ton of money. This should be a business. Let's turn on the revenue switch." Like, what is your mindset around that discussion? Uh, I mean, ENS was was built explicitly as a public good and not as a business. And when we launched the DAO, we set some really strong norms about that. You know, we. We asked people to vote on a constitution that enshrined its effectively non-profit status. Uh, over 95% of people, I think, uh, agreed to, to those clauses in the constitution. And, you know, we made we did our best to make it very clear, like, you can claim your airdrop regardless of how you vote on this. We want your honest opinion, you know, should ENS continue in this vein? Um, I think there is a very, very strong social and governance norm towards ENS continuing to be a public good. Um, I certainly would be would be strongly opposed to any attempt to sort of extract value. And partly that's because of my belief that public goods are essential and partly because it's it's part of my down to my belief that once you start extracting value from systems like this, you look for ways to make them more profitable, but not necessarily more useful. You know, they're only more useful in service of the profit. Uh, and so Sometimes that works, you know, with some things that's what will make a better, more popular product. With other things, it's, well, everyone's locked in, we can double the fees. And so I'm really concerned about the sort of incentives that pop up once you start doing that. And I'd rather move in the other direction of abstracting away human control where it's not necessary and limiting it to the upgrades and the levers and so on that are absolutely crucial to have than going the other way. Interesting. Okay. So I remember Vitalik dropped a blog post about a year ago on ENS's pricing model and revenue model, if you will. And he wanted to incorporate like a demand-based pricing aspect, if I'm recalling correctly. It's been a while since I read it. Um, did anything come of that? And I'm a little bit surprised because it does sound like you're like very much in the same ethos as Vitalik was in that article, but maybe you just think about revenue differently. I think uh, Vitalik and I see eye to eye on a lot of stuff, including you know public goods and 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 a lot about ENS. the The discussion was all about, like you say, demand based pricing, and the the issue there is how do you implement that in a way that isn't easily abused, um, that actually you know honestly reflects it uh, and its usefulness and so forth. Um, and by, sorry, by it, I mean the domain. Um, and 
It's really tough. I haven't seen a proposal yet, including Vitalik's, that I believe is robust enough that it would be a viable alternative to, to just simple flat rate pricing, uh, because you can easily think of scenarios where uh, you know the the value of the name to the owner is actually, or the you know the value they they accrue by actually owning it is much lower than the sort of value it has to other people. So you can imagine a scenario where, say, uh, you know, you imagine evil Coinbase and they own CB.eth and, uh, you know, they give out subdomains for free to all their users. And the, so the value to them is, is the value of their reputation effectively on, on continuing to act honestly. But the value to someone else of owning CB.eth might be now we can rug every single Coinbase user uh, or sorry, evil Coinbase user. Um, and so evil Coinbase might go, well, hey, here's how we can get a really great Q3 earnings report. We'll, you know, we'll sell this, this subdomain. Um, and that requires almost like a cartoonishly evil organization, but in a situation where you have Harberger-based tax pricing and so forth, you almost automate that because the people who could make a huge amount of profit off uh, you know, defrauding every Coinbase user can now effectively bid up the cost of maintaining CB.eth. And if they bid it up to the point where Coinbase can't afford it because they don't make revenue relative to, you know, the number of users using it and the amount of, uh, you know, a fraud you could conduct if you took the name, then they lose it. And the people who lose out the most aren't evil Coinbase, they're the people who actually, you know, were using those subdomains. So I think the big problem with all of these schemes is they don't really account for the fact that the value of the name to its users might not be the same as the value of the name to you know arbitrary others. So it's kind of getting hitting home at the point of like uh, you know squatters or snipers as they're com commonly referred to. And so I think you push forward the idea of like ENS ferry. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and kind of how that would attempt to mitigate some of these issues? Sure. Uh, the ENS ferry is basically just a, um, a cooperation to try and get names to the people that they make sense for. You know, I think one of the best ways to measure the success of a naming system is sort of the principle of least surprise. If you pick a popular name of some kind and enter it, does it resolve to the entity you expect it to? And the more often that's true, the better the naming service is. And so short of some like automatic way to do that, which is, you know, hugely problematic, uh, ENS Ferry is kind of just doing that on an individual volunteer basis, you know, by doing their best to acquire names that clearly represent one organization and then getting the names to that organization or person or, you know, whatever it be. Um, and just effectively, yeah, do donating them to the people that, that would use them for their intended purpose. So that kind of opens up Pandora's box in some regard, right? Because it's like, how do you define the rightful owner? Um, so talk to a little bit about like the challenges of that and like, okay, maybe there's, you know, let's say that a company in or a big brand in America was also a big brand in the, you know, some Eastern country and there was no relation between the two brands at all. Like how do you define who's the rightful mm -hmm. owner of this term? I, I think that gets right to the heart of why you can't easily automate or or enforce a system like this you know it, it really only works in the context of ENS ferry because it's being done a on a voluntary basis and because uh they're doing it for you know names that are fairly unambiguous and really getting it to any one of the people that it reasonably represents is a, is a win over it being unused whereas if you tried to build some sort of system that arbitrates who should own each name then you get into that tar pit that you just described where, you know, if you have Apple.eth, does it go to Apple Music or Apple Records or your local orchard? You know, there's, there's really no perfect answer. And you kind of need a, a perfect answer. Otherwise, Apple Music or Apple, um, you know, computers are going to come after you and sue you for, for giving it to the wrong person. And I feel like uh, that kind of also wraps in with the idea of like unlimited registrations because these uh, squatters or snipers will come in and just like grab a, a you know an S tier name if you will like let's keep using the Apple example you grab that register it for 500 years which is you know effectively forever then they kind of can have the ability to be like all right well either you never get it or you pay me and that's is how do you think about the idea of like limiting 
or shortening uh, registration periods or something along that nature? It's, yeah, there's sort of two reasons that I think indefinite registration is a problem. Uh, one is what you described effectively. It, it reduces the cost to squatters because they know they can acquire a portfolio and then sit on it forever. There's no incentive for them to, uh, you know, to relinquish names that aren't performing, that are, you know, that nobody wants. They, they can just sit on it. There's, there's really no cost to them. Uh, and I should distinguish here, you know, squatters versus speculators because, you know, in, in my mind, a squatter is buying a name that they clearly know represents one other person or, you know, that, that is not a generic name uh, and attempting to effectively extort the, the, you know, the owner of that name for, you know, to purchase it off them. A speculator is buying up, say, John Dolly and is like, well, there's about, you know, 10,000 Johns out there, one of them will want it. Um, and I feel personally a lot better about speculation than I do about squatting because I feel like squatting is, it's basically a tax on being late. Um, and, you know, in, a, in an entirely anarchistic system, that may be okay, but I, I'd much rather our system, as I say, be less surprising. So I, I think it's a, a problem for that reason. It's also a problem because names get lost, you know, that people will acquire names and then lose their credentials. And eventually, you know, a big part of your name uh, space just becomes permanently inaccessible. And you can get around that by having you know, regular pings or whatever to, to retain the name, but it's kind of just discount renewals. You know, it doesn't really feel like a big difference. I think regular registration fees are a good trade-off because they impose a cost on holding a name that isn't hugely significant if you have your name, but is if you have 20,000 names that you're hoping to profit off. You know, it sets a lower bound on how much of a name space you can afford to sit on. Um, I don't think necessarily like limiting a maximum duration is, is useful because for it to be meaningful, the, the maximum duration would have to be fairly high, call it like a decade. And at that point, it's long enough that I think it's, it's difficult to say that it's having a big effect on the availability of names, you know, in the short term. Um, I quite like the fact that in ES, you can uh, effectively you know, make a name immortal or close to immortal because there's no fixed limit on registrations. Uh, I've even mooted in the past on the DAO, um, what if we discounted longer registrations, you know, on the theory that a speculator is likely to only want to retain a name for a couple of years while they try and sell it. And if it hasn't sold after that long, they probably don't want it. Um, the remaining registration duration on a name doesn't seem to have a big effect on how much it sells for. So, if we made it like really cheap to register, you know, for a hundred years compared to registering for two, you know, like maybe only five times as much, then uh, people who actually want to keep the name would be incentivized to do that. And the speculators would still pay the same price. So you'd get a more useful system. Um, I safe to, safe to say I'm not, uh, that, that opinion isn't universally held. So it wasn't uh, uncontentious enough that I felt it was worth like really fighting for. And just to kind of like hammer home on that point, what is the current pricing model? So if I wanted to register uh, a name for one year or a hundred years, is the hundred year mm -hmm. option just like actually a hundred X more expensive than the one year? It is. Yeah. So it's uh, five bucks a year for uh, five plus character names, uh, 160 a year for four character names and 640 a year for three character names. And those prices for shorter names are kind of a bit of a brute force solution to the fact that there's just not very many of those names. And if they were five bucks each, that'd all be set on forever. And you all were thinking about adding, and maybe you already have, so forgive me if I'm off here, but one and two characters? Mm -hmm. We haven't. Uh, it's, it's always a possibility. You know, just like it's a contract upgrade, it's definitely doable. I think that one and two character names are so rare that we can't just be like, oh, okay, you know, they're a thousand bucks a year or whatever, you know, some or some outrageous amount. We probably need a distinctly different approach to administering those names that recognizes that, like, particularly the single character names are always going to be extremely in extremely short supply. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're pretty much just kind of promoting speculation under that scenario, most likely. But, uh, I mean, that's part of the game, right? <laughs> you know, I don't want a situation where like Coinbase can afford the five-figure fee to have cb.eth 
but mm. nobody else can have something distinctive because it's just way too expensive for them either. You know, or the flip side where they're cheap enough that they're all instantly on the secondary market. Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. Um, I'm, I'm also curious, I, I want your opinion. I feel like airdrops have been a pretty controversial topic. Like no one really knows how effective they are. In hindsight, the way you guys distributed ENS, would you double down on that same exact strategy or would you go about it a different way knowing what you know today? If I could repeat what we did when we did it, I would do the same thing more or less, you know, with some minor tweaks. Um, if we were doing it today, I wouldn't. I think ENS was really fortunate and that we actually got in right at the tail end of when it was practical to do this without it being completely botted and farmed. Uh, you know, we were starting to see speculative airdrop farmers, you know, right as we were getting ready to launch. Um, and if we'd launched a year later, even without any like hint that we were going to launch a DAO beforehand, I think it would have been much more gamed and, and much less practical. Um, I do think if you can identify meaningful metrics, uh, you know, that represent actual users of your your service, then being able to airdrop to them gives you a massive leg up as opposed to just like a basic usage metric. And sort of the less expected the metric is, the better. So I think we did quite well, for instance, in that uh, a large part of the airdrop was determined by how long you've held uh, sorry, how many days you had held at least one ENS name for. And so it's extremely difficult to sort of bot that because you'd have to go back in time and register, you know, right from the launch of ENS. Um, and at the same time, it doesn't like reward people for for owning 10 or 100 or 1,000 names. It's just how long have you been part of the ecosystem? So it's a difficult measure to forge. It's also not necessarily one people would have expected to be measured on. Uh, and therefore, I think it worked pretty well at, at targeting people who actually used ENS. And one of the core messages around the airdrop was, hey, we're distributing responsibility in the form of governance over this public good. Um, mm -hmm. Is that still really the the core thesis behind the ENS token itself is to like, hey, this is ownership over this public good and the distribution of the treasury to go fund this. So. Yeah, very much so. And so, you know, if somebody does, uh, you know, something that's worthy of a grant in, in the ENS DAO, they'll often be granted uh, some amount of Ether or fiat currency, you know, USDC or whatnot uh, for the work. And then also some number of ENS tokens basically saying, you know, now you have more of a voice in the ecosystem. And we treat those quite differently. And we uh, you know, we try and assess them on their, their merits, you know, what sort of, what was this worth in terms of governance voice and also how much should we, should we pay them? You know, those are two different variables. And going over to like kind of user metrics and adoption, uh, you may not know this off the top of your head, but how many ENS domains, you know, are out there in, in user wallets? And have you seen a specific, um, I guess, downfall in activity as a result of the bear market? Or do you think it's people losing interest in the domain kind of narrative? Like, what would you chalk up the decline in usage to? Um, I know we're up over 2 million, but I don't know what the, the actual number is right now. Um, we've seen, like, we've seen a tapering off in interest, but not as much as I would have expected, I guess. You know, it, it's, it reflects the general downtrend in activity on crypto, you know, in, in recent times. But there's still a great deal of activity like as you alluded to the the registration and renewal revenue continues to be pretty strong um yeah i think you know mostly it reflects the market as a whole rather than you know any specifically um there's also just a tendency for people to glom on to whatever's new and shiny you know at any given time uh, and while we continue to release new and shiny things, ENS as, as a whole is generally viewed as like fairly stable and well-known. And speaking of new and shiny things, the V3 name manager was recently uh, highly discussed. And so I'd love to get your take on what that enables and how that powers like the next generation of users using ENS names. I think the, the main thing, the main way to think about it is it's, it's just the UX is a lot better for end users and really in general, you know, we, we stepped back and we looked at target users and looked at like all the things we wanted to enable and, and really rebuilt it from the ground up with those sort of flows in mind, you know, and so the main thing it enables is just actually doing the things you could technically do previously, but were you know, maybe quite fiddly to do, or just it was unclear to end users how that worked. 
Um, the app is in a, a difficult spot, really, because we have a lot of users who are very goal focused. You know, all they really want to do, uh, you know, understandably, is go in, set their name up, and leave. You know, and then maybe come back in a year to update their profile or something. You know, or, or six months or whatever. Um, at the same time, though, the app really needs to support all the functionality that ENS enables. You know, it's, it's I've always been quite adamant that that we need to do that because we don't look particularly credible if we build a system with advanced functionality that you have to go to some third party app in order to actually use. You know, there are limits to this. If you're writing your own, you know, code and deploying it and so on, then we naturally we can't provide a complete interface for it. But we're still trying to serve those two user groups. And so I think, um, you know, our front-end team have done a pretty astonishing job of, of enabling all of that without cluttering up the interface and, and making it difficult to understand for people who just want to accomplish that one thing. And is the goal of the app really to kind of be like, a, I don't know if like Rolodex is the right term, but how, I guess that's a better question. Is what is the vision for the app? Like, how do you want users to ultimately interact with this? Um, I think it's it's less like a Rolodex and more like your decentralized profile page. So, you know, it, it's you editing your card and someone else's Rolodex in a way. Uh, you can use ENS to look up other names, of course, and to, to view their profiles and so on. But that's more or less a secondary aspect of it. You know, we expect that most people will be viewing other people's ENS details via the apps that integrate it. Whereas when you're visiting the app, it's mostly you're there to to update something that you own. And uh, also following up here, how do you think about building a UI that's mobile first versus desktop first? That's like kind of uh, a lot of apps in crypto today are, are desktop first, but a lot of users want to be mobile first is what it kind of mm -hmm. seems like the narrative is. So I'm curious, uh, is that the same realization that you guys are thinking about? Yeah, I think... Uh, we, you know, when we rebuilt it, we built it with mobile as a first-class citizen. I'm not sure whether I'd say mobile first or desktop first, but rather that, you know, we recognise we have a large user base in both camps, um, and there is a reasonable mapping between mobile users are mostly just wanting to achieve the thing, and desktop users are mostly wanting to do something more sophisticated, but. I, I don't know about you, but I get incredibly frustrated when I go to the mobile version of some site and half the functionality is missing. So we really wanted to, to avoid that as much as possible. Um, in large part, like uh, our astonishing fronting team did most of this and they didn't ask me like whether it should be mobile or desktop first because they had a much better handle on it than me as, you know, that's their expertise. I'm very much a backhand guy. Yeah, sometimes you just got to let the people who know what they're talking about do it. <laughs> so I totally feel that. I do that every day. <laughs> that's, that's been one of the hardest things to, to cope with growing, you know, that like for the longest time we were four or five people and... You know, although I wasn't doing the front-end development, I was talking daily with the people that do, and we were all, you know, working with each other very closely. And as Labs has grown, you know, that's no longer the case. We're, we're still not a huge organization by any means, but we're no longer small enough that that's the case. And it's been, it's been a bit jarring at times to, to realize, oh, hey, this entire initiative happened. Uh, and it's great, but I, like, I had no involvement with it. You know, it's weird. <laughs> That probably feels like magic, honestly. <laughs> like, wow, that thing actually just... Yeah, no, especially when that is stuff that I previously did myself, you know, and now somebody who is actually an expert at that is doing it rather than me. That actually feels like a like a superpower of a DAO, right? So, you know, ES, ENS Labs is now not the sole developing team of the ENS DAO. They're just a core contributor to or a service provider of the larger DAO. And we've actually mm -hmm. seen a number of DAOs kind of trend in this direction, right? If you think about uh, Ave, for example, like BGD Labs, um, Gauntlet, Chaos Labs, there's all these different service providers that are all using their expertise to help better the DAO. Is that kind of the way you see DAOs as a whole progressing is not necessarily like individuals coming in and helping, but I don't even know if I want to say professionalized groups of service providers. I Yeah, I think that is the best way to structure a DAO. I, I think trying to pretend a DAO is a company with a reporting hierarchy and individuals doing work and working closely together 
is a recipe for sort of a morass, you know, where nothing really gets done because you've got this decentralized hierarchy trying to pretend to be management. Um, this approach with, with development orgs and so forth is, is much better. Um, but I also think it's worth emphasizing that, you know, it doesn't have to be some large company. It can literally be a guy who is like, here is a cool thing I need, you know, I think needs building. Here is my like one pager of like why it's worth building and why I'm the guy to do it. Uh, how about some funding to get started and I'll come back in a week and show you the MVP, you know. They do enable that sort of thing and at, at their best we should be really in, encouraging that sort of thing by making sure it's very easy to get started, you know. It's, it's easy to get a little bit of money and a little bit of time to show that you, what you've got here is valuable instead of a lot of bureaucracy that is really only can only be overcome by larger organizations. I've got a question for you kind of out of left field. Um, friend tech has gotten like a ton of attention and obviously it's in a very different category than ENS, but I'm, I'm just curious your general thoughts on, on that primitive. So I initially had really sort of squicky vibes from it because of its predecessor, whose name I can't remember now, but the, the other one that was trading on people's profiles. BitCloud. BitCloud, thank you. Uh, BitCloud, sorry, thank you. Um, and so my initial reaction was like, haven't we done this before and didn't we all hate it? Um, and so for that reason, I didn't really like look at it right at the start and now I feel like it's too late to really you know, spend a lot of time on it. Uh, the feedback I've seen on crypto Twitter has generally been, you know, positive. Uh, it does seem mostly like a kind of a fun speculative game rather than a perhaps a lasting thing, but we'll see. And keeping the the left field questions uh, coming to you, so I want to. I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on like the identity layer of crypto, and really what I mean by that is the layer that bridges the gap between say your physical world identity. So like me as Dan Smith versus me as a hexadecimal address on chain. And like, what do we need from that layer? Because it's kind of got to thread the needle between privacy and accountability. So how do you think about that as a whole? I think, uh, you know, the whole threading the needle conversation is it's largely a matter of, we need to make pseudonymous identity and separating uh, you know, different uh, facets of your identity from each other easier in general. You know, that's not unique to naming, but naming does make it much more obvious. You know, all of the, the crypto analysis stuff that goes on to link accounts together and so on doesn't rely on ENS names to make it, you know, to make it possible. It's, it all works in a, in a world without names. But when you throw a name on something, it immediately tells some people this is, thought of it as this, you know, somebody thought of this account as Nick.eth, you know, and, and so it immediately sort of provides an identity, which is in that sense is a double-edged sword. But in a world where we can more easily um, maintain separate identities and, you know, have software that enables that by making it possible to make anonymous transfers between facets of our identities, uh, makes it possible for us to, to keep track of, you know, who we're interacting as and that we're not accidentally sort of cross-contaminating, um, it becomes much more sort of uh, voluntary and, and consent-based, I guess, and that you can decide who you're presenting, you know, which, uh, you know, which identity you're presenting, um, which really isn't that much different to say how, you know, social media logins like Twitter work, you know, with, with the exception of Twitter, nobody knows when I'm logged in as my alt that it's, the, that it's my alt, and yet somehow when we do that on chain, it's like, it's suddenly contentious. You know, you the Netherlands arrests people for trying to build equivalent privacy to Twitter, you know? Um, so ultimately I think, yeah, you usernames and, and profiles and, and naming systems have to work hand in hand with, with better on-chain privacy in order to enable any of that. I don't think it's possible to build it just at the naming layer because there's so many more, you know, levels to it. Would ENS ever want to expand deeper into those levels or just let's focus on the naming layer, let's kind of like own that space and, and try to be the best there? I think that, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, you know, I would enthusiastically support better primitives for, for financial privacy um, and, and build functionality that supports them in ENS, but I don't think it's our job to be, to, to be pioneering that. Okay, that's super interesting, right? Because I can see why 
a large entity or whoever it may be would be like really interested in owning that stack. It could be fairly profitable if you were like a more of a corporation or it could be a very beneficial thing if you were more of a public goods focused service. Right. And so my initial guess would be like, oh, like that could be something Coinbase would be interested in doing. But the fact that they're actually leveraging ENS uh, is, is kind of nice, right? Because you don't have to worry about, oh, you know, these guys might actually kind of like eat our service because they can, they're a large corporation that's well-funded. They might be able to just go do it. Um, so how do you think about expanding the partnerships around that and like being like, okay, if someone else is going to build this, like, let us be your name layer. Like, don't go bother trying to rebuild that. Like only go focus and like drive that attention towards the other pieces of the stack. I think what you've hit on is, is pretty much our strategy when it comes to talking to all of these other protocols and platforms, you know, we, you really don't want to invent naming from scratch. You know, we've spent six years doing it. What we've built is, is independent. It's not like tied to one, you know, one platform or application. It's not, you know, you don't have to pay for access. Um, you know, integrate, integrate that and focus on your, you know, your key strength. Um, and so I think that applies for things like, you know, social, decentralized social media and things like that. Um, I, I forget what your initial question was, because I was so enthusiastic about agreeing with that statement. <laughs> I mean, that was basically it as if, if you agreed with was ultimately the question there. And so um, when it comes to like privacy as a whole, that's like such an unopened can of worms. I think Wei Dai actually recently gave a talk at this uh, around ECC's timeframe where he was like, we need, first of all, before you can even like go do these things, we need to better understand what we want from privacy because mm -hmm. maybe like a country in the West might want something very different from what a country in the East might want. And how do you build an open source blockchain that, both countries are interacting with to kind of get that balance. So I guess ultimately my question here is how do you think about privacy concerns related to a, around like segregating your identity to do to, to, to two different pieces on chain? Like, how do you, how do you think about that? I think ultimately it's, it's, I'm probably wrong about this, but I feel like ultimately it's relatively straightforward in that we just, we need systems and tools that make it easy for us to create multiple pseudonymous identities and to choose how they interact with the world and with each other. And right now, those are vastly lacking, partly because of, of you know the lack of privacy and on-chain transactions, but also partly because our wallets and apps don't make it obvious to us when we're about to you know link two of our identities together by accident by you know sending transactions that are that, that make that obvious. Um, I don't think it's an unreasonable request to be able to have you know multiple wallets in the, in the ethereum sense any more than he have multiple wallets in, in the cash sense you know or that i can show up to a dairy where they know me as bob because i told them i'm bob you know you do that and nobody like comes after you to arrest you for fraud because it's just you know we all interact differently in different different environments and i think uh you know and a system like this doesn't have to be intrinsically hostile to to law enforcement, to you know, to reasonable uh, you know provisions for for investigation and things like that. You know, the, the ironic thing about the whole mess around Tornado Cash is that Tornado Cash actually built provisions into their base layer protocol to allow people to voluntarily link their their inputs and outputs. You know, so you could still KYC yourself to an organisation if you'd used Tornado Cash. You could present a cryptographic proof that says. Yes, that money that came out of Tornado Cash, it came from this other account of mine. Here's the proof. Um, and if you know, if, if only those things had actually been adopted, like they, that's actually a, a really legitimate way to provide online on-chain privacy and so on, without you know the, this threat of you know enabling enabling money laundering and all that sort of stuff. You know, you can just say. Only the people I want to know the connection know the connection. That is incredibly interesting. I did not know that fact about Tornado Cash. I'm glad you you shared that one. Practically nobody does, it seems, including law enforcement. And yeah. as I say, it's frustrating because it means that you know when you need to prove that connection, you can. You know, which is exactly the scenario you want, and it's the same scenario you get with like a bank account, except that it's the bank that you know the cops go to to ask for that connection. Whereas in this case, it's you who, you know, can provide that uh, as necessary. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense uh, looking over the situation in hindsight. And yeah, that was a key piece of info. I feel like everyone on crypto Twitter was missing. But uh, putting a bow on this conversation and kind of uh, 
tying it up as we're coming up on an hour. I want to be respectful of your time, but are there any specific projects that are leveraging everything that ENS has built to date, or maybe some that you guys have funded through public goods that you're particularly excited about? Uh, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, the, the first ones that come to mind immediately are uh, Namebase, which has been doing an, an amazing job, uh, you know, making it easy for people to issue subnames and building tech on top of that. Um, you know, and the various other uh, marketplaces and stuff like ENS Vision and so on that have basically taken ENS functionality and, and made it the core of their product. Um, I think things like uh, DM3, which is your know, on-chain notification, notification and messaging system that have integrated ENS at the core layer, uh, demonstrates how useful it is to have a, a decentralized naming service that can be the foundation of other bits of infrastructure. Um, and then of course, there's organizations like Coinbase and so on who have decided to make ENS the core of their, their digital identity. Um, those are the ones that come immediately to mind at any rate. I also have one last question, and Dan, I'll kick it over to you in case you do too. But like, I feel like when ENS, around the time that you guys dropped a token, it was like a huge wave. I feel like every week I was getting spam in Twitter for like a new like ENS ripoff, essentially. Um, do you think you guys are at the point now? Like, would you say that you've established enough network effects that, you know, you're kind of the go-to naming service or uh, I know it's the open source nature of crypto, but just how do you feel about, you know, 18 different naming services on every single chain? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think that's, uh, that is a, a pretty accurate recap of history. And I do think that, yes, now we are the, uh, you know, the one that people compare everything else to, in effect. And that doesn't mean that those clones have stopped popping up, but they seem increasingly obvious as cash grabs rather than actual honest attempts to build a naming system. And I'm not saying that you can't build a better naming system than ENS or that it's too late or that it, it has to be a cash grab, but um, it's mostly what I've seen have been attempts to, to mirror ENS's success by just cloning it rather than, than building on top of it. Uh, and I kind of wish that wasn't true because, um, you know, while I hope ENS succeeds, I hope we succeed by, by innovating and building the best tech and, and getting the best ideas, not just by virtue of being the only one. Yeah, I, I, I love that approach as well. And Nick, I, I just want to thank you for taking the time to come out on the show. This is a great conversation. Really awesome to hear kind of your thoughts from the trenches of, of how you've been building this product and why you're building it and what's to come next. So uh, thanks again, Nick. And also as a, as a user of, of blockchains, I would like to thank you for your product because improving the UX is something we desperately need to continue building. So thank you, sir. And if you could just leave the audience uh, with where they can find more about ENS and, and follow more, follow you, hear more about your thoughts as well. Yeah, uh, it, was a, it was a pleasure to talk with you. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Nick, Nick S.T. Johnson, and you can find ENS at ENS Domains um, and at ENS.Domains. Um, bef just before I go, I should apologize to the name Sys team because the app I was thinking of is name Sys, not name base. Um, it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks a ton, Nick. And we'll include all those links in the description. But thanks again. Cheers. Thank you. 